So here we've made it to John chapter 6. We'll we'll cover the first 29 verses. This is the uh, famous story of uh, Jesus walking on water. Anybody here heard of that before? Where Jesus walked on water? Very interesting story. Um, So I've got your notes here for you. We'll we'll chop this up in little sections here. Once again, this is a a passage of Scripture that there's there's a few kind of strange things in here. If you don't understand what's being said and you don't understand it like on a map, then you can read it and go, I have no idea what that's talking about. Next verse. Anybody ever run into that where you go, you just said this and this and this and this and this. I have no clue what you're talking about. Next verse. Well, hopefully in this passage after tonight, you won't say next verse. You'll say, oh, now I get it. So once again, I've got this for us in the scriptures tonight. And it's starting in verse one. It says, after this, Yeshua went away to the other side of the Sea of Galil. I've got some notes there for you in a minute. We'll cover that. That is Lake Canareth. And a large crowd was following him because they saw his signs, which he did on those who were sick. And Yeshua went up on a mountain and there he sat down with his taught ones. And the Passover was near, the festival of the Yehudim. Now remember that the Yehudim is talking about uh, the Jews, and the Yehudioi are the religious leaders of the Jewish people. So in your notes here, uh, there's these two words in the Scriptures version sounds a little odd. It says, after this, Yeshua went to the other side of the Sea of Galil. That's the word there for Galilee. So um, in the ESV, this is the way it says it. And I'm doing it this way in two ways because I want you to see something that's fascinating. It says in ESV, verse 1 says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee That's spelled G-A-L-I-L-E-E. So you can put that there in your notes under next to where it says Galil. Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Okay. So this, in the Scriptures version, it uses the word canaris. You, if you were to look this up or you look on an Israeli map or whatever, it might even say Kinneret. There's different ways to spell it. <clears throat> the word Kinneret probably comes from <clears throat> a Hebrew word which means harp. Why? Because the Sea of Galilee is shaped kind of like the shape of a harp or a kind of pear-shaped upside down a little bit or whatever, but the shape of a harp. Um, In the ESV, it says the Sea of Tiberias. Now, why would it say that? What's interesting here is John is giving us these details, right? He could have very easily just said, you know, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Next verse. He doesn't say that. What he says was after this, he went to the other side, the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias in the ESV. But if John was writing this in Hebrew, which I think he probably really did originally, he would have said, that is the Sea of the Canaret. Galilee is the area, Canaret. You got that map there, Bammer? Can you pull that up for me? This got a little fuzzy. I don't know why it did this to me, but it did. This is the Sea of Galilee, okay? It's the area of Galilee. You can see that up there. Up at the top, remember uh, we talked about Capernaum or Capernaum. Uh, Up at the top where Jesus healed Peter's mother and all that stuff happened up there. And then... You have to keep in mind at this point that Jesus is coming from Jerusalem. So he comes up to the Sea of Galilee, basically in the south. We'll get there in a minute. But you see that town there in the middle there? It's the town of Tiberias. Okay? Rome 
basically took over this city, renamed it and everything, fortified the city, put troops there, and named it after Tiberias. Okay? So then it put it on the, on the shore, and then Rome would call the sea the Sea of Tiberias in the same way that they renamed the whole area Palestine. This is pretty common for any conquering country to come in, and what do they do? They take over, disperse it. They rename everything. They rename it after their culture. Why? So that they can claim it, watch this, forever. So they just get you to keep calling it that so they can say, you see, it's ours. So that's what Rome would do. It's nothing new. The reason I'm pointing this out is because if you don't understand these nuances, as John did, and as his, the, his target audience would have understood it, you're, we're going to get to a verse and you're going to go, I don't understand. None of this makes any sense. But do you see that? Now, before I get there, uh, I'm going to go ahead and point this out. Matter of fact, for the rest of the message, just leave this map up because everything is going to focus around this so that you can understand what happened. <clears throat> so the Sea of Galilee is approximately 13 or, or so miles north to south and about eight miles wide, okay? And it gets to about, I think it said, about 140 feet deep <clears throat> at the deepest point. So here's what I want you to see in this section. This is where Jesus is coming from Jerusalem, what's down here in the south. Uh, He comes up basically to the bottom point of the Sea of Galilee. And it says in verse 2, a large crowd was following him. And then he says, why? Because they saw his signs which he did on those who were sick. Now, we're about to see where he's going to feed 5,000. We'll get to that in a second. But what I want you to understand is these people are now following him because they're seeing incredible, incredible miracles. He's healing the sick. He's doing all these wonderful things. Now they're following him. When we get to that point, everybody here already knows there was how many people there that he fed uh, on the mountainside there. He's fed the 5,000. And the 5,000 is basically the men. So it could have easily been, easily been 10,000 plus. Not all the men would have been married, but some would. Those that were married could have even had kids. Some of those kids could have gone with them. So if you just double it, if counting any kind of wives or children that it could have been there as well. And we know there was some children there because there's a boy with a sack lunch. So it could have easily have been 10,000 people, right? In context, so that you understand this, that at the time all of this is happening, I believe it was the city of Capernaum. Uh, I believe it was that city that was mentioned in this, the, my readings that they're, uh, they're, uh, the population of the city at the time was only about 200 people of that particular city. So for there to be 10,000 people show up to get fed, what I want you to understand is now this has really become a major regional issue. There's a big following is what I'm getting at. Massive, especially for that time and place. Okay, <laughs> let's continue on here. <clears throat> so it says that Yeshua, he goes up on a mountain and he sits down there with his disciples. Uh, and then you get down to verse five. Now, it does mention that the Passover was near, meaning that it's, uh, well, it's springtime. Passover's in the spring, right? We're only about a month away right now, I think, for us. Is that right? Is it, a, is it that fast? Wow, got to get in here. Um, so it's in the springtime. Uh, and it says that it was near. doesn't say that it's actually happened yet, but it's close. You pick up in verse 5 and it says, Then Yeshua, lifting up his eyes, he sees a large crowd coming toward him. And he says to Philip, Where shall we buy bread 
for them to eat. And he said this, trying him, him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered, man, 200 pieces of silver worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for every one of them to receive a little. So here's what I want you to see. It says here that Yeshua, he looks up, he sees this large crowd coming to him. He looks over at Philip and he goes, so where are we going to buy something for him to eat? Now, we're pretty positive that it happened right about here. We'll get to that in a second. Pretty positive it happened right about here. There's really nothing down there. These people are following Jesus because they've heard about everything that he's been doing in Jerusalem and in his travels. Now there's like 10,000 people plus. Let's just say 10,000. So Jesus goes, perfect. Hey, Philip. Where are we going to buy them something to eat? A lot of people. The logistics are huge. Where, where are we going to get food for these people? And it says that he was doing this to try them because he already knew what he was going to do. Don't forget that. <clears throat> Yeshua is never going to say anything or do anything by accident or happenstance. It's not just circumstance. It's not, hey, here's a good, uh, here's a good, this, this, you know what? This will work. He knows beforehand every single thing he's going to do and why. Does that make sense? So he's up on a mountain with his disciples teaching. The pictures here that he's going to be painting are massive. That any Israelite really would have understood. It's almost like he's reenacting the Mount Sinai event coming out of Egypt with Moses on the mountain, giving them his truth or God's truth. These people show up and Yeshua goes, so where are we going to get something for them to eat? What did they eat in the wilderness? They ate manna. We're not going to get to that part of this passage. Because later, he's, they're going to have the debate about the manna. But this passage is 60-something verses long. We're not going to get there tonight. So don't, in other words, what I'm trying to get at here is don't be too critical on Philip. Okay? Because he, he, Philip asks, answers him. Philip gives him a specific answer to a specific question that Yeshua asks. Yeshua says, where are we going to buy food? Philip goes, If we had over 200 pieces of silver, we couldn't buy enough bread for each one to have a little piece. A little piece. I mean, that's a snack. 200 pieces of silver. I didn't even get into the actual uh, monetary value of that in today's figures, but we're talking about a large sum of money. What would it cost today to feed 10,000 plus people? I mean, at a buck a piece, you're looking at 10 grand. You can't cater it for that. (laughs) You know, maybe $5 a piece, $4 a piece. Man, you might be able to do it for two bucks a piece. You get tacos at Taco Bell or something, you know, right? Uh, So we're talking about a whole lot of money, and that's Philip's answer. So you jump down to verse, I just want you to understand that Philip's giving him a specific answer to a specific question. It's not that he failed the test. He gave him, he gave him his answer. He's like, we don't, we don't have that kind of money. We, we, we can't do it. So you jump to verse 7, it says, Philip answered him. If we had 200 pieces of silver worth of bread, it's not sufficient for them, for everyone to have a little one, just a little bit. And then verse 8, it says, but one of his taught ones, one of his disciples, Andrew, which is also Andrew, the brother of Simon Kepha, Simon Peter, he said to him, here's a boy who's got five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many? Philip's always bringing people to Jesus and he's always bringing some sort of an answer or what he has. But in this case, Philip's like, you know what, Yeshua, we got a sack lunch. 
I, you know, I don't even know what we're going to do with that, but we got a, we got a sack lunch. <clears throat> and he, he ends it with, you know, but, but what is this going to be for so many of them? Then look at what Yeshua says. Well, you know what? Make, them, make everybody sit down. <laughs> he hasn't even told them what he's going to do. He, doesn't, he, hasn't said, he hasn't said, don't worry, guys, I got this. Now have them sit down, right? Me being a Texan, if Jesus said, have them sit down, I'd have been going, and then what are we going to do? I, you know, that's just because I'm dumb, and that's just what, what would probably roll off my tongue, you know. But his disciples don't do that. Yeshua says, have them sit down. So they're like, have them sit down. I don't know. We got a sack lunch. Have them sit down. We have no idea. 10,000 people. So the 12 apostles go around for 10,000 people, need everybody to sit down, sit down, everybody take a seat, everybody take a seat. <clears throat> Wouldn't have been just easy just for that to happen. And here's where it says, and then the men numbered about 5,000, they sat down. So it's going to be somewhere around 10,000 people. It says, Yeshua took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed them to the taught ones, to the disciples. And the taught ones, those who were sitting down, and the same with the fish, as much as they wished. You might want to underline that. <clears throat> as much as they wished. So here's what happens. Yeshua takes the bread and the fish and he blesses it. He gives a blessing. You know what the blessing would have been? Praise, something like, praise you, O Heavenly Father, we thank you who brought forth bread from the earth and brought forth the fish from the sea. That's what he would have said. He wouldn't have said, blessed are you, O Lord our God, now cause this stuff to multiply. That would have been a Paul Henry prayer. But what Yeshua would have done, which is what every Jew would have done before they ever ate any meal, they would have said, thank you, O Lord, for the food that you've given me. It was giving thanks for the food an actual attitude of prayer. You know what our attitude is today? God, can you do something with this mystery meat I'm about to eat? <laughs> Am I right? God, please let this bring nourishment to my body and not cancerous tumors or whatever, right? Please, I know the food's contaminated. Please, you know, can you do something with this? I can't be the only one, right? That's, that's most of our prayers before we eat. Let that sink in. How self-centered is that? Self-consumed is that? Instead of, God, thank you for the food. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have anything. Did you see the difference in just the mindset? So that's what Yeshua would have prayed. <clears throat> and he distributes the food to his disciples. A sack lunch. He divides up a sack lunch among 12 men. And then tells them, pass it out. <laughs> you just imagine, okay, here we go. I've got crumbs in my basket. I mean, there's got to be about that much. It's divided up 12 times. There's got to be, you know, a mouthful. That's about it. In each basket. Can you imagine them going to the row and going, uh, pass this down that way. Oh my gosh. And then they go around the other end and they're looking in there and the basket's full. It's got, still got food in it. They keep passing it around and there's food in it. 10,000 plus people. But I want you to notice what it said was, this kept happening, it kept happening until the people got everything that they wanted. They got what they wished for. So here's my question for us before we continue on. How much of, God, of the blessings of Elohim do you really wish? Seek him while he may be found for the day is coming when many will seek for him and they're not even going to find him. How much of the blessings of God do we really want? I think that's also why we're told 
you're not receiving because you're not even asking. And when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives. Ask, seek, knock, you'll get it. But you gotta want it. You gotta ask him, Can't, will you do this? And then receive it. But you know what? You'll get what you ask for. So you know what? Why not ask for the moon? To glorify God. In other words, I'm not saying that we should ask that God name the moon after us or something weird. I'm just saying, you know what? We should aim higher, folks. I tell everybody all the time, man, I married up, and I really did. Matter of fact, I know a lot of men that married up. Um, lobbed one over the fence. You know what? When it comes to God, why aren't we trying to lob one over the fence? He called us into his kingdom, join heirs with Jesus Christ himself. Why not aim higher instead of, oh, well, you know, yeah, just let me have a bite. That'll, that'll, that'll be fine. Well, okay. That's what you want. That's what you get. Because notice what happened after this. <clears throat> it says, when they were filled, they got what they want. They got their fill. He said to his taught ones, gather up the broken pieces that are left. Look at this. So that none gets wasted. God does not allow his blessings to be wasted. None of them. The blessings that he gives out are all taken care of and all accounted for. So what happens? <clears throat> so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets full with broken pieces of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. In other words, this is the leftovers where people said enough. I'm, I'm good. He sends them out and they pick up 12 baskets. Why 12? Why not seven? Why not whatever? Why 12? What? Yeah, yeah, authority, completeness, uh, number for perfection, and the 12 tribes by 12 apostles. This is going to become very important. We're about to see something. 12 tribes, God goes, after all this is said and done, my 12 baskets will be full. And I won't let out, and he says, so that none of it is wasted. <clears throat> so then in verse 14, it says, the, then the men, when they saw the sign that Yeshua did, when they saw that, they went, whoa, this is truly the prophet who is coming into the world. So you might want to jot this down as a reference, Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. Let me read that for you. Here's where it says, I shall raise up for them a prophet like you out of the midst of their brothers, and I shall put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. And it shall be the man who does not listen to my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. This is the prophet they were looking for. So here, this is where the, the, they, they all go, whoa, this is the prophet that was to come, that's supposed to come into the world. <clears throat> Verse 15, then Yeshua, knowing that they were about to come and seize him and make him sovereign or, or king, he withdrew again to the mountain alone by himself. So here we see where Yeshua, he knows what they're about to try to do. They're all amazed. They're like, he's like, they understand that I'm the prophet, but what they don't understand is that I'm, I haven't come to do what they think I've come to do. He understands <clears throat> this crowd is now worked up enough that they're about to literally come and surround me 
and basically march to Jerusalem and declare, I'm the king and set me up as the earthly king over this nation. And Yeshua knows that and he's like, no, that's not what's going to happen. That's not why I'm here yet. Uh, And so to keep them from doing that and getting out of God's timetable, he withdraws again to the mountain. Now this is where we're going to get to this area, this section about him crossing the sea. Now I've stuck these two, I've, I've decided to not separate these two stories because it's important to understand it in context. Right? We have to read our Bibles in context. So this is happening right here at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. It's these people from this area. This area is where? It's in the north part of the kingdom. And who, what group of people is from the north part of the kingdom? The ten lost tribes of Israel. This is where they were from. This is where he is. This is where he just fed them. And these people are now going, whoa, okay, this has got to be the prophet. Let's reunite the kingdom on our terms. And Yeshua goes, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen. He goes up on the mountain. When you read the other gospel accounts, you understand he sends the other apostles forward on and he says he's going to dismiss the crowd and then he, he goes up on the mountain. But let's keep reading here in, uh, in John. So you pick up uh, in verse 16. And it says, When evening came, his taught ones went down to the, the sea. So I already told you really that this is about, uh, it's somewhere around 13 miles long and about 18, uh, eight, eight miles wide. Here's one thing you might not realize about the, the Sea of Galilee. Did you know that it is the second most or the second deepest? It is the deepest uh, freshwater sea on earth. It is the lowest below sea level, if you will, or whatever, freshwater sea on earth, except there's only one more that's deeper, which is the Dead Sea, but it's not a freshwater sea and there's nothing living in it. So it is the, the lowest freshwater sea on earth. The Jordan flows out of it. It is fed and into it. Uh, it's fed by the Jordan River and a lot of underground springs. And then it flows down into the, the Dead Sea. <clears throat> so... It says in verse 17, and entering into the boat, they were going over the sea towards Kafar Nahum, is how it would really be pronounced. We say it as Kaparnum. What that means is it's a Hebrew phrase, Kafar, a village of Nahum. So it, mean, it means the village of Nahum, or so we call it Kaparnum. It's easier for us to say that, but it's not really what it means. So. <clears throat> It says, entering into the boat, they were going over the sea towards Capernaum, and it had already become dark, and Yeshua had not yet come to them. Yeshua had not yet come to them. So what does that all also mean? You keep reading in the gospel accounts, you put these things together. He basically said, I'll meet you. I'll I'll, I'll meet you over there. He just fed 5,000 people, so they're like, I mean, 10,000 people are like, you know what? We can't even keep up. Our brains can't keep up with what he's doing. So whatever he says, that's, that's what we're doing. But here's what I want you to see. This is now where this becomes important. So they started what? They started right about here at the southern, somewhere around the southern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Tiberias. Watch this. I need to say it this way. Sea of the Canaret. Those three terms are interchangeable for this sea. You following that? And so they're headed where? Capernaum. How long is that? It's about 13 plus or so miles today. Today. It varies depending on how much water is in there, right? But it's 13 or so miles from here to there. 
and that's where they're headed. Okay, you have to keep that in mind. It had already become dark. Yeshua hadn't caught up with them yet. It says, and the sea was rising because a great wind was blowing on it. It was very turbulent. And it says, and when they had rowed about five or six kilometers, they saw Yeshua walking on the water coming near the boat, and they were scared. No kidding. So when you read the other gospel accounts, you realize, <clears throat> well, uh, they were scared to death because they're out there, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's bad enough that they actually think they're going to drown. You have to remember, too, Peter and them, they're fishermen from Capernaum. They've been on this sea their whole lives. Part of the reason why this happens is because the sea is way down in the bot. It's low. There's mountains all around it. These storms can come up uh, where you're not aware of it. Uh, it's, it's large enough that it's not really a lake. Uh, it's a sea. Uh, it's a small one, but it is a sea. <clears throat> um, and these storms can come up, and they're trying to get to Capernaum. But here's what's so interesting about this is that John goes so far as to tell us how far out they are. Now, why would he tell us that? Why would he tell us, you know, um, they're going on over there. They're, you know, we're, and he's on the boat, right? So he, he's saying this from personal experience. Uh, and they've gone out about five or six, you know, kilometers. In English, that's what it's saying. Or watch this. About three plus miles, somewhere around three miles. Why would Jesus wait until they got out there at three miles? Why not five miles? Why not two miles? Why not seven miles? Eight miles? Why three miles? Does Yeshua do anything by accident? No, he's waited, he's waited to the particular moment when he wanted to be out there with these men in the sea. If you, if you add all this up and you understand that there, it's about 13 plus, some say as much as 14, obviously it depends on exactly where you're going. <clears throat> but John, because they, they're not measuring and it's at night, but he is inspired by whom? He's inspired by God. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit to put it down this way. He does know about how long they've been out there, about how long they've been rowing, about how, long, how fast they would be going. So he's calculating. These men lived out there. So he's like, okay, so they're out there, and they've gone about three or so miles, which is going to put them about 10 miles from where they need to be. Well, imagine that. How many tribes are part of the lost tribes of Israel? Ten. What is it that Yeshua came to do? He came to restore the kingdom under his reign and rule, the united kingdom of all 12 tribes, which includes getting the lost sheep of the house of Israel back. When he sends out the witnesses later and he goes, listen, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go anywhere, but only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When he was asked about coming and doing these miracles, he said, I only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We can't put these things together because our minds are so clouded with all this other junk and we don't understand what he's doing. And what is he doing here? He's painting this incredible picture. He's trying to prophesy and show us why he came and what's going on. And watch this. He's crossing a sea, <clears throat> and the waters are troubled. Once he gets in the boat, they are miraculously transported from three miles out to 13 miles across, including the boat. Transported. It says instantaneously they were on the other side on the rocky shore. Does that sound maybe similar to even Noah and the ark and God taking care of his own in troubled waters? Possibly. But you know what else is fascinating? 
Do you know what the word see in the Bible quite often is metaphorically talking about? People, the nations other than Israel. <laughs> so his, his people are in the midst of the sea and this troubled sea is trying to kill them. And basically God says, you know what? I got all this mapped out. I'm going to get in the boat at the perfect time. Ten miles out. Not five. Ten miles away. Not five miles away. Not four miles away. Not 3.2 miles away. Not 9.3 miles away. I'm going to get in the boat at ten miles out. Because I came for the ten lost sheep the 10 lost tribes of the house of Israel. And while the world is trying to kill my people and stop me from doing what I want to do, I will instantaneously transport them to the other side and prove to everybody that I really am God. And I'm going to prove to everybody that, watch this, even the physical realm will have to bow to me. I will walk on troubled waters. I've never been able to wrap my brain around that. I mean, walking on water is one thing, but these are troubled waters. How did that work? Waves and stuff going on, and Jesus, he's out there walking on it. I don't know. Was there a round, flat spot where he was walking? I'm, I'm thinking logistically: is he, is he climbing over water, or is he just, is he walking through it, and the waves are slapping him? How did that? I have no idea. What I do know is that he's walking on water, and then he gets in the boat. Now, when you read the rest of the account, like in Matthew. Let me see if I've got that. Yeah, <clears throat> jot this one down. Matthew 14, 27 through 33. Matthew 14, 27 through 33. It says, but immediately Yeshua spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Kepha, Peter, answers him and says, master, if it really is you, command me to come to you on the water. Let me come out on the water. Everybody's always quick to bash Peter for putting his foot in his mouth. Peter got out of the boat for crying out loud. Peter walked on water and the other idiots didn't. He got out of the boat. Nearly made it all the way to Yeshua. We should give him some credit. And he said, come on. And when Kepha had come out of the boat and he walked on the water to go to Yeshua, but when he saw the wind was strong and he was afraid and began to sink and he cried out saying, Master, save me. And immediately Yeshua stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little belief, why did you doubt? And when they came into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat came and did bow to him saying, truly, you are the son of God. I mean, they, they saw, that's wild, right? And it wasn't only just Yeshua walking on water. They see Peter get out because Jesus goes, well, get yourself on out here, boy. He jumps out of the boat and they're watching him walk on water. And then they come back. They get in the boat. The disciples bow down to Jesus in the boat because the wind just stops. And they're like, you're the son of God. Can you just imagine? You're the son of God. In my mind, and I'm thinking, they look up and go, how did we get over here? We're on land. Because the scripture says that they were immediately on shore. They're 10 miles away. It took them a few hours to get three miles because they're being buffeted by the wind. Because <clears throat> verse 21 says, um, they wished therefore to take him in the boat and at once was at land where they were going. So where were they going? To Capernaum. Important to understand this. Now watch this. On the next day, so now it's, the, it's the, this next day. This is all happening at night. On the next day, the crowd was standing on the other side of the sea. There was no other boat there except the one into which his taught ones had entered and that Yeshua had not entered the boat with his taught ones. But his taught ones went away alone. Now here's the verse that sounds confusing. But other boats... 
came from Canaris, or it could be said as Tiberius. Now look at the map. Other boats came from Tiberius. You re- if you don't understand that, you're not watching this, none of it makes sense. Now it's going to make perfect sense for you because you're able to look at this. Now listen to what it says. But other boats came from Tiberius or Canareth near the place where they had ate the bread after the master had given thanks. So the other boats, there was a bunch of other people that heard about it. They heard what was happening. They're in Tiberius. What do they do? They make, they get, let's get in the boat and go down there and see what's going on. So they're headed this way and they show up down here. The crowd is still down there going, what in the world is going on? The disciples left. They, they come down there and they're like, well, he's not here anymore, so then what do they do? Let's go back. So it says, they came near to the place where they ate the bread after the master had given thanks. Therefore, when the crowd saw that Yeshua was not there, nor his taught ones, they themselves also entered into the boats and came to Kafar Nahum, Capernaum, seeking Yeshua. So what, what happened? This group of people got into some boats, evidently a lot, a lot. They come down here because they're like, we got word that the prophet is here and fed 10,000 of you with a sack lunch. We got to go see this. They get in the boats and they go down here. Can you imagine what was going on? Never knew it. All this stuff is happening simultaneously. Peter and them, they're trying to get this way, but they're being buffeted by the winds. Everybody else is coming down this way. The wind is actually helping them. You following that? They get down here and find out he's not there. They're all going, well, he's got to be in Tiberias, where you guys came from. So they get in the boats that came from Tiberias, and they go back up that way because they're not, they're not sure exactly where he sent his his disciples. They get up there and they're like, what do you mean he's not here? Oh, he must have gone farther to Capernaum. That's right. That's his home base. Let's go up there. So that's what they're saying is what's happened is these boats come down here. They go back up there and they're like, he's not here either. Okay. Well then let's get up to Capernaum. You following that? So this crowd is trying to chase him down by boat. I imagine a bunch of them are even literally running. Literally on foot, running, trying to follow this because they believe that he's the prophet, maybe even the Messiah, and they're wanting to what? Let's restore the kingdom. For context's sake, let's turn this back into a Christian nation. This is our, ch- this is our shot, right? After you hearing how badly I get bent out of shape about abortion and this other stuff going on, and we go, we've got a shot at turning it back into a Christian nation? Well, I don't even want to go back to what we used to be. We need to go back to what we were supposed to be. Uh, but anyhow, so they're all excited, and, they're, and this is what's going on. So it says, therefore, the crowd saw the issue was not there. In verse 24, nor is taught ones. They themselves also entered into the boats, and they came to Capernaum. And what were they doing? They were seeking Yeshua. So let's go to verse 25. It says, and, at, and having found him on the other side of the sea, they asked him, Rabbi, dude, when did you get here? They're trying to figure this out because they know that he sent the disciples on ahead. They know, because when you read the other gospel accounts, that evidently Yeshua talked to them and tried to disperse the crowd. He goes up on the mountain. He goes, don't follow me. He goes up on the mountain. Storm breaks out. An army of ships comes down here. We don't know exactly how many, but it had to have been a lot, right? They're looking for Yeshua. He's not there. He's nowhere to be found. Maybe they send somebody up on the mountain. We can't find him. He's not here. He said something about meeting his disciples. Maybe maybe that's where they went. All this confusion going on. So they take off that way to try to find him. They get up there. He's not there. 
The disciples aren't there. No one's there. They know what boats came down. They know what boats left. They know who's on the boat. Why? Because they're all looking for him. My guess is that there was not a boat left down here in the south. Just fed 10,000 plus people. They were about to try to crown him as king and overthrow the government in Jerusalem. So everybody is looking for him. So what are the odds that somebody's going to be like, nah, nah, I just don't think I want to go. <laughs> right? I think the odds of that happening is like slim to none. So they go back up to Tiberias. They can't find him there. They know where all the boats are. They're in the boats, and they're like, he's not here. No, he's not here. The disciples aren't here. They didn't even, they're not here. No one's landed all night long. There's not here. Well, then let's go on up to Capernaum. They get up to Capernaum, and there he is. Well, now, hold on a minute. How did you get here? And then Yeshua says something to them pretty crazy. In verse 26, it says, Yeshua answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were satisfied. Now, here's a question for you. What does a sign do for you? What is a sign? A sign, yeah, a sign <clears throat> tells you that you've arrived at your destination, or watch this, or it tells you what path you're on, whether it's the right one or wrong one. I really love Google Maps on my phone. You get to cheat, you know, the lady keeps telling, I never can figure out how she knows where I am to tell me make a U-turn, recalculating and all that other stuff. No, I said turn left and I didn't want to turn left. You know, but the one thing that always bugs me because I you know, can't look at my phone and drive at the same time when she says, turn right here. Okay, and I hope I'm on the right place. Where before it's kind of nice to look at it and go, okay, I'm supposed to turn on Avenue K. That's what I'm looking for. I'm going to turn left and I'm going to turn left on Avenue K. And so I look up and go, yeah, Avenue K, she was right. I'm going to turn on Avenue K because, by the way, she also tells you about 30 seconds too quick because she knows you're traveling and by the time you turn, you'll be at the right place, right? A sign tells you you're on the right path. It's to point you to something and tell you something. He says something here huge. Because what he says is, it's, it's bad news. He goes, truly, truly. And then when that's repeated, it's like, pay attention. This is the honest truth. You're seeking me, but not because you saw the sign. Can you imagine the heartbreak in Yeshua? After everything that's been going on, everything that he's been doing, he's been doing it to give them a sign, to point them to something, to reveal to them who he is and why he came, to remind them of everything that happened in the Old Testament and how he's fulfilling all this stuff, and they can't get it. He's like, I'm telling you, you're not seeking me because you saw signs. In other words, you're not here because you really want truth. You're here because I filled your belly. Because you got what you wanted. I let you eat until you got all that you wished for. And now you just want more of what you wish for instead of really seeking truth. You didn't see the sign. You didn't see what it was pointing to. You didn't see what it really meant. The disciples were starting to figure this out. If it's truly you, let me come on out there. They come out there and they go, you are the son of God. And look up and they're on the other side of the shore with the boat. This is where Yeshua says in verse 27, don't labor for food that is perishing, but for the food that remains to everlasting life, which the son of man or son of Adam here shall give you. For the father, God, Elohim, has set his seal on him. So they said to him, what should we do to work the works of Elohim? 
Now, before we get too critical <clears throat> on them for asking this question, this question is actually a very honest question. What they're really saying is because he's like, you're here because I filled your belly. You're not here because you saw the signs. Wake up call. You need to be working for food that lasts. We, like I said, we don't have time to get into this. This is where this discussion is going to get into the manna question and statements and some statements that he's going to make that just rattles everybody. <clears throat> but he goes, you're seeking me because I filled your belly. You got what you wanted, but you missed the sign. You need to be working for the things of God that, le that leads to everlasting life. You need to be doing his stuff. You need to be listening to the Son of Man because God has set his seal on him. He's reminding them, okay, you said I was the prophet. God said when the prophet comes, you need to listen to every word he says and every single person that doesn't. I personally, Yahovah myself, will hold that person accountable. So Yeshua is basically saying, okay, you said I was the prophet. I'm the son of man. God has set his seal on me. They're still not quite getting it. You need to seek for food that lasts and brings eternal life. So their question then is, okay, well then what is it that we need to be doing to actually find ourselves actually doing the works of God. That's what they're saying. It's an honest question. From somebody, watch this, that actually thinks they're seeking after God. The problem is when we're seeking God only for our own good instead of seeking God so that we can glorify him. That's the big difference when we're seeking him just for our own stuff. So, <clears throat> so who wrote this? I know God inspired him, but John, right? So John repeats this same uh, answer, if you will, that Yeshua gives in 1 John. So you might want to jot this down. It's 1 John 3, 23. 1 John 3, 23 says, and this is his command that we should believe in the name of his son, Yeshua, Messiah, and love one another as he gave us his command. So these Jewish people are asking, so what are we supposed to be doing to do the works of God? And Yeshua said to him, this is his work, that you believe in him whom he sent. you believe in him in whom he sent the prophet the messiah the one that's talking to him now i want to show you how when we are so disconnected from our bible and so disconnected from the old testament we take that simple statement and twist it so out of context it's not funny this is where our typical Christian doctrine will say, you see, therefore the law is now no longer applicable. The only work we're supposed to do is just to believe in Jesus. And then we don't have to do anything else. The problem with that mindset is it's intellectually dishonest. I agree that we should trust in Yeshua. That's the work of God because God said, I'm gonna send the prophet He's also going to be the Messiah. You're supposed to listen to what he says, obey what he says, and the person that doesn't obey what he says because I'm going to put my words in him, I'm going to require it of that person, meaning salvation is not going to happen and there's one place for those that, re that reject him. Okay? So the things that Yeshua said are the things we need to be abiding by because he said them. Like when he said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. I tell you, heaven and earth will pass away from before the smallest jot or tittle of the law passes. Heaven and earth will pass before the word of God passes. 
If you teach others to lessen any of these laws and you lessen any of them, you'll be called least in the kingdom. But if you keep all of them and teach others to do also, you'll be called greatest in the kingdom. I could go on and on. Of all the things that Yeshua said, like when he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and on and on and on. Things that you guys have heard many times. Therefore, there is no yeah, but. There is no, yeah, he's the Messiah, but Peter's vision, the Jerusalem council, Paul's statements, blah, 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 and yank them all out of context and make them say something that they don't say. And then you say, well, see, that means all you got to do is you just got to, you just got to believe that he really is the son of God and you're good. Well, the devils believe that. It's the passage you got me saved out of the book of James. I've told you all that many times here. You understand now that what, what he's saying here, he's saying, you want to know what the word, what the work of God is? I'm here. The father said I would come to restore the kingdom, restore all of earth back underneath my rule and reign. And the way I'm going to prove to everybody that I have the authority to do it, I'm going to do the impossible and I'm going to take these people that are up here, watch this, you guys that can't figure it out. And I'm going to take you guys and I'm going to restore the kingdom. But I'm going to have my people traveling across the seas of humanity and the seas of humanity are going to try to destroy them. But I'm going to show up right at the nick of time, right at the perfect timing, so that when we get to the other side, I'm going to prove to everybody that I really, really, really am God. Therefore, you need to pay attention to what I'm saying and trust in me and obey me and follow me. That's what he's saying. Because when you do that, you're saying God is God. God said he would do it. He did it. I believe it. Period. And I'm going to live my life in a way to proclaim the truth that God really is God. Yahweh is the one and only true God. There's not multiple paths to God. There's not multiple gospels. There's not multiple ways. There's not multiple ways to understand the Bible. It's a simple read if we'll stop adulterating the word of God to fit our own cultural needs. So what he's saying is, trust in me, believe in me, because the father said if you don't, it's over. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that God doesn't require us to do anything. He is saying that God requires us to obey and listen to him and then show people that he truly is the son of God. Folks, God loves you and I so much. I say it this way. He crossed the sea of eternity, dealt with all that junk, painted picture after picture after picture, tells us truth after truth after truth, shows us through history over and over and over and over again. You can be out here in this sea and I will show up. But you know, there's one thing we constantly overlook in this story that is the saddest part of the story. Judas was in the boat. Judas was in the boat. Judas was carrying one of the 12 baskets. Judas confessed, you are truly the son of God when he thought he was going to die. And Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver because Judas thought he had the answer for what he thought God was going to try to do through the Messiah. Once again, mankind trying to answer a problem for God, thinking that God has a problem when he doesn't have one. And what does it get you? Death and destruction. Trust God for what he says. Believe in him. Desire God. Desire the blessings of God and to follow God and to bring glory and honor to God's name and to stop dragging his name through the mud. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Then I'll add all these other things unto you. Stop seeking your kingdom, your stuff, 
stop trying to answer a problem for me that you think I have. It's like I can almost hear God saying all the time, would you stop trying to answer a problem you think I have? He doesn't have any problems. Our biggest problem is getting us out of the way and just listening to the word of God and telling people, look, God loves you. God loves you. Now, folks, do you see why understanding your Bible from a holistic perspective is important? Yet you and I are only scratching the surface. And if that's the case, this turbulent sea is about to get a lot worse. A lot worse. Crazy as it is to think that we would try to, we would hold a service here to repent over the killing of babies and we would get threats over the internet for it. That they were going to send pedophiles in here to cause problems. I'm going to tell you straight up, and I'm going to say it Texan, I ain't scared of any devil, any demon, because I know that my God is God. And these are some fights I will not back down off of. I won't back down off of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, which is anti-Semitism because it's an affront to the very name of God. I will not back down off of this abomination called abortion. It's not, it's murder. I will not back off of the very word of God that is the true word of God, and I will not adulterate the word of God to keep people happy. Just won't do it. I am not your dog and pony show. I've never been. I'm horrible at it. <clears throat> but the sad truth is most people that end up in a church service are seriously not going there to change. They typically will go there. Well, the changes we want are changes that will make us happier. <laughs> Um, and typically wanting to be entertained or just feel better, get your 20-minute sermon. That's what y'all always get here, right? 20-minute sermon. Um, and, uh, you know, and to feel good. My challenge, and I feel my calling before God, is to express what the Word of God says so that we would change from the inside out by surrendering our lives over to His authority and to stop claiming that we are in, in charge and we're in authority. We're not. He is. Folks, he's going to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. He'll do the impossible. Watch this. He'll transport a boat 10 miles across the sea in the middle of a storm. You transport a boat. Poof. Because God is not limited by time or space. We are. He can do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. He can say it, and it is, and it's the truth. He can say that upside down is right side up, and you know what? It will be, and it'll be normal. He can stop time. Scientists say not possible. Okay. Why don't you take that up with the creator when you meet him? I mean... It's a created thing. It's connected to space and time and movement. Time is connected to the material world and movement. So before God created, guess what? There was no time. Wrap your brain around that one. And for eternity past, God existed when there was nothing there. And for him, it wasn't long. 
because we don't even understand eternity. So what I'm trying to say is that God is in charge. We're not. It's time that we started trusting him and following him and telling other people about him. Amen? We didn't even get there, but I, I would be at a fault if I didn't bring it up because later we'll get there. I think it's verse 44 or 46 where he says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. That's why Paul said we're saved by grace through faith and even that not of yourself lest any man boast. That's why Paul said I don't boast in anything except Christ and him crucified. I got nothing. I got nothing. That's what Paul was saying. I used to teach philosophy and all this kind of stuff, get people in the kingdom. Now he goes, I know, now I know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's all I know. He's the God of all gods that became flesh and died on the cross for our sins. And the only reason why, watch this, the only reason why any of us are in this room and even desiring to understand what that says is because God is going, hey, I'm calling you. Hey, my spirit's breathing on you. I need you to get in the book because I'm whistling for you and I'm showing you these truths because that's going to get real bad and I need you to understand this so that when I show up in the boat or when I show up walking across the sea, you're going to go, I was just waiting for you to get here instead of being scared. 